If the government today can crack down on Muslims, shut down their organizations, criminalize their their leaders, etc., it's because people at the top of the government know they can do it and get away with it. Hello and welcome to Who Belongs, a podcast from the ONB Institute at UC Berkeley. My name is Mark Abizaid, here with co-host Irfan Maradi. In the background, you're listening to La Carte de Résidence, performed by Algerian singers Sleiman Azam and Sheikh Noureddin. In this episode, we'll look at the heightened social tensions in France in the wake of the beheading of a schoolteacher by a Muslim immigrant in October. In response, the French government is trying to impose a global security law, which would increase surveillance on the population and effectively ban filming the police if passed. This bill has led to widespread protests. But what's received much less scrutiny is the creeping Islamophobia within the state. In October, just prior to the attack on the school teacher, French President Emmanuel Macron promised to crack down on so-called Islamic separatism with a new law. Following the attack, French authorities dissolved two influential Muslim organizations, the Collective Against Islamophobia in France, known as CCIF, and Baraka City, an Islamic charity group. For a critical analysis of these actions by the French government, and to better understand what's happening on the ground, we'll talk to human rights activist Yasser Louati, head of the Justice and Liberties for All Committee, and decolonial activist and author Huria Boutelja, founding member of the Party of the Indigenous of the Republic, both based in France. Here was our conversation. So what we wanted to try to do was try to understand the context of what's happening in France, um, try to understand the, you know, the this increase of tension between white French society and the Muslim population and this attempt by the French state to show the Muslim population as not only a national security threat, but also a threat to uh, French values, whatever those values may be. Uh, We hear a lot about laicite or secularism, uh, but we know that this kind of analysis is, is simplistic and false and it neglects some of the deeper foundational sources of that tension. Um, so we just wanted to start off by getting uh, y- your assessment of how you interpret the recent events in France. Well, what we're seeing right now is just an acceleration of a process that has been started for the past multiple decades. Um, the structural analysis that we already live under an extremely authoritarian regime called the Fifth Republic. And this Fifth Republic was has already was born out of a coup d'etat in the midst of the colonial repression and actually gives tremendous powers to the president and very weak checks and balances on whether it be like the judicial system or parliament. And what Emmanuel Macron is doing today is not only using that position as a president to his advantage to run for re-election, but also for him to further legitimize the ideas of the far right that went from the fringe of the political spectrum to becoming mainstream today. Now, of course, anytime there is an attack in France, the typical response is we are all in this together, we shall overcome, we will win. But the uh, footnotes says that in the Sui, there are no Muslims. And despite a Muslim presence that can be traced back to over a century from multiple you know, generations that came throughout 
the various decades of the past, uh, past century, we see that Muslims, as you said in your introduction, are inherently perceived and portrayed as a, what I call a triple threat, a threat to national identity, a threat to national security, and a threat to the national economy. And what has further polarized the relationship between the French government and the various Muslim communities is anytime they organize and leave the position of just, you know, abstract statistics, like in 1983 on the, or the historic march against racism and, uh, and for equality, and throughout the decades, and anytime they organize, that po further polarizes the dominant narrative that these Muslims are questioning the status quo. And that's you know, Emmanuel Macron today has, is not doing anything new. He just, it's just growing exponentially. So today, the two flagship bills he's proposing, the first one, of course, being the Comprehensive Security Bill, which will further shield the police away from scrutiny, accountability. You cannot film the police. Drones will be used on public events, etc. But instead of looking at the second flagship bill called the Law on Separatism, the, the Comprehensive Security Bill needed Islamophobia to be legitimized. And the second bill that will be specifically targeting Muslims on the term of separatism is nothing short of clear violations of the French constitution, the laïcité law, which would, Emmanuel Macron is asking for the right to meddle in clerical and religious affairs, and for him to decide what can Muslims be and not be, say and not say, do and not do. And my last point, if I may, is this term separatism actually came in reaction to the anti-racism marches of the last summer. And instead of Emmanuel Macron, you know, addressing the issues brought forward by these marches, he, brought, he came up with the term separatism through his government. And the second one was en sauvagement, which means people acting like wild beasts. And we see that his reaction is similar to the reaction we had in the early 1980s when blacks and Arabs from the banlieue organized. But this time, there has been a 40-year, uh, how can I say, uh, period that allowed Emmanuel Macron to go beyond mere rhetoric and to pass these drastic laws that only confirm that it's, not, it's no longer a question, does France have a problem with its Muslim population? France does have a, it becomes an affirmation, France does have a problem with its Muslim population. And this Islamophobia targeting Muslims today has also allowed France to become a further authoritarian state, if not a police state. Ria, did you want to add to that? So the, the situation in France is quite worrisome, uh, as you know, since the decapitation of Samuel Paty by, uh, by a Muslim terrorist. The government took the, this opportunity to repress even more the Muslim community. You know, the government dissolved the CCIF, which is the main anti-racist organization, the most important organization regarding the number of, uh, of members in France. Uh, maybe Yasser can, can confirm this, uh, this point. The government disso dissolved also Baraka City, which is a Muslim charitable organization. 
and the government decided also to to close a certain number of mosques, whereas there is no link between the mosques and terrorism. But the aim of the government is to charge Muslims to make them support the responsibility of its own responsibility in the phenomenon of terrorism. I don't need to say here that France that, that France is involved in the war in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, or in Libya. Charging Muslims means making France innocent. The rage against Muslim, Muslims is also due to our political progress. Actually, there is a pessimist way of analyzing the development of Islamophobia in France, and an optimist way. The pessimist one is to say that Muslims um, do not have any power in France, so they can't protect themselves Uh, actually, and the optimist way is to say that our struggle is progressing. CCIF was a quite powerful organization. Decolonial thought is now penetrating the, um, the university and the political parties, so we can analyze the panic of the government also as a reaction against our capacity of resisting. Nevertheless, the Muslim condition in France is one of the worst in Europe. Last month, Three Turkish children were arrested. Moreover, 400 children have been singled out because they refused to observe a minute of silence for the assassinated prof, professor. And 150 complaints have been filed against children, accusing them of justifying terrorism. When we add to all this that the repression of Muslims is made On the idea that freedom of speech is threatened by Muslims, you have a quite good idea of the way everything is reversed. The victims become the torturers, the dominated become the dominant. Islamophobia is negated, whereas anti-white racism is promoted. Actually, the debate in France about the freedom of speech that is threatened by Muslim is only a hypocrite offensive for the leading classes to defend, to protect their own right of being racist. Today, uh, Muslims cannot escape the fact that they are really treated like the indigenous during the colonial past. I think that what is interesting today is that Muslims are condemned to be lucid, aware of what they are really in Europe. It means that now the representatives of Muslims have to get rid of the dreams of becoming citizens inside the French nation state. They have to put it in question. In one word, they have to get rid of what we call integrationism. That's very powerful. And there's a lot of strands that we can pick from that. Um, but one thing that you both mentioned was that this, you know, what's going on now isn't really new. Um, it seems like, you know, after a certain period, after certain attacks, there's just this intensification of the targeting of Muslims. And um, so I was hoping that you could give us a little bit of background and history about the, the social and political context for that. Um, I remember back in 2004 when they had the headscarf ban, for example, Um, and, you know, we know that there's a lot of history rooted in the colonial legacy of France and North Africa and the creation of the Bon Dieu. And so can you talk a little bit about 
that context and that history and how it brought us to where we are today? We have to understand that there has been a process of manufacturing the Muslim problem and that the Muslim population in France has been part of France for a very long time. Now, we know, I, won't, I won't get into history and to the early you know, sites of Muslim presence, but regardless of how, how long Muslims have been here, they are constantly put in the box of a foreign entity. And this can be further illustrated or is further illustrated, for example, when we take a look at how France dealt with Muslims in the 1970s and 80s, it was always through the lens of international events, uh, the Iranian Revolution, the Salman Rushdie affair, the Middle East, the civil war in Lebanon, and the list goes on. And every time you had international events, they would look inward and try to find a voice from within Muslim communities as if they were somehow, uh, you know, directly or directly or indirectly connected to what's happening abroad. The second thing we see is that while manufacturing the Muslim problem, we also manufacture the enemy within. So in France, when Muslims again became visible entities organizing for their rights and daring to demand equality from the dominant power structure, here in this case, the centralized French government, of course, there has been a series of backlash. Now, the, we can take a few dates to see how this is not new. For example, we have the 1983 march that I mentioned earlier, but one of the most notorious dates is 1989 and the uh, first historic case of banning of the uh, Muslim headscarf in public schools. But what is interesting when, during that episode is that institutions stood with Muslim girls in their right to wear a headscarf in public schools. The Council of the State, in its decision, clearly stated that these girls had the right to wear a headscarf, which means the people who fed the controversy targeting Muslims as trying to assault France's Republican institutions, etc., it failed. It was loud. It was very audible, yet institutions held and, you know, protected their rights. But we see that throughout the years, we saw an erosion th through what we see, the, the so-called uh, Human Rights or Republican Front in 1994. Then Minister of Education, François Bayrou, published a circular that goes around the Council of the State decision and allows them to expel Muslim girls from public schools if they feel that they are using their headscarf to proselytize. So if they are preaching their religion, they could be accused of it and then expelled, which is, of course, I mean, how would you accuse someone of proselytizing? Now, that becomes, of course, an arbitrary decision. But from 1994 until 2004, we saw that the assaults kept growing and we have seen an ever-growing front that amalgamates or that brought together people from the right and the left, but most importantly, from the left. And we saw that even French or left-wing unions were you know, preparing, the, setting the field for the banning of 2004. But that banning of 2004 came after a, a series of well-orchestrated operations. The first one was, of course, uh, seizing the opportunity of 9-11, that's for one, then using, saying that 
whatever America was faced on 9-11, France should stand in solidarity and start treating Islam as a domestic terrorist threat. Then came the year 2003, and we had uh, a two-sworded event. Uh, for example, in 2003, we also had violent, the beginning of the dismantling or the acceleration of the dismantling of the welfare state with the first uh, pension reforms under the government of uh, Jean-Pierre Raffarin, as you had hundreds of thousands of people marching in the streets against this pension reform, the media focused their attention on the Muslim problem and the threat represented by the headscarf in public schools. If you take statistics, for example, in early 2003, French public opinion was split 47 and 49% in favor and against banning of the headscarf. But after a year of media harassment and the continuous coverage of the Muslim problem, there was a shift that allowed public opinion to accept that this specific law of 2004 is passed. So uh, two commissions were set up, which were rigged from the start uh, for the Stasi Commission. And I, and I hope our listeners keep these names in mind so they can trace back what's happening today. The Stasi Commission was set up by Bernard Stasi, a friend of Jacques Chirac, to try to find out whether a law was necessary to ban the headscarf or whether or not there was an Islamist, between quotation marks, threat against the Republic. And if we go to his first interview after the commission, he said, quote unquote, had we been asked whether we should legislate or not or push for a law, we would have said, no, a law is not necessary. But after auditioning around 113 people, it became clear that there was an Islamist assault on the Republic. The problem is the 113 people who were auditioned were all of them against the presence of the Muslim headscarf in public space and public schools. And not a single Muslim woman wearing the headscarf or a student wearing it was auditioned. And that further legitimized the passage of a law that was a clear violation of human rights for Muslim girls, but also a clear violation of laicity, because laicity is about the neutrality of the state, not neutrality of users of state services. And from that date, 2004, there has been a continuous uh, erosion of human rights for Muslims. The 2009 ban of the full-face veil, the, the, uh, in 2010, the debate on national identity, and of course, the Burkini hysteria, the, the chasing around of Muslim girls wearing long skirts, etc. So this manufacturing is not a series of incidents or a series of uh, events that happen to happen. No, they have been well orchestrated. And, and I'm, I, I think I will be quite, how uh, can I say, uh, sharp in my criticism on the front fighting Islamophobia in France is that it is one thing to blame Emmanuel Macron and his policies, but we also have to take a look at how people standing for liberal values went from one defeat to another, which allowed this conservative revolution that started in the 1980s to push forward and bring together Islamophobes from the left and Islamophobes from the right. And what's, what's happening today uh, you know, I, of course, I can be criticized and will accept it, but it's actually a debacle because what we see is 
a political decision taken to dissolve CCIF and Baraka City on political and ideological grounds. There is absolutely nothing legal in what was done to those two organizations. And yes, CCIF was the main organization fighting Islamophobia, and I happen to have been their spokesperson between 2015 and 2016. But this also raises questions on the effectiveness of the struggle against Islamophobia. How come an organization that's been in place for 20 years could be dismissed in a matter of two and a half, three weeks without a uh, radical struggle to push back against this arbitrary decision, not only because it penalizes Muslims, but also because it sets a dangerous precedent that the government can shut down an organization based on a decision taken by the executive branch of power. And this is why France today is at a crossroads. And this is why Muslims today are the barometer, not only of democracy, but also of the rule of law and human rights in the so-called cradle of human rights. Uh, Yasser, let me ask a quick follow-up to that, because both you and Huria have um, kind of implied or, or even been kind of direct about your critiques of the French left in that they stand... Um, They've been with the resistance against, for example, the new national security law, but they're not standing against these attacks against CCIF and you know the separatism law and this kind of thing. So it's like they're picking and choosing whatever is convenient for them or something. Um, can you kind of talk about that, you know, what those coalitions look like, what your relationship is like with the French left? The white left is protecting and defending only the, entre- the interests of uh, the white labor classes is something is, that is not new uh, among the decolonial activists. We know for a long time that we are not defended, that we are not protected by the, by the whites in general. This is why we decided in 2005, just after the law uh, against the veil, uh, that we have to get rid of uh, this uh, this dream of uh, of, conver- of converging with the with the white and with the left. Uh, this is why we we created the um, the party of the indigenous of the republic, which was against the left, against the right, against the extreme right, but also against the the white. We decided to 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 rely only on us. This is an autonomous um, uh, organization, and this is an autonomous consciousness because we we know what we see now uh, around this question of uh, the global uh, law uh, and and the fact that um, the, the 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 white politics. The white political field and the and the left, uh, in particular, they, they are not they are not fighting uh, the law against separatism. They are, ma- they are making a distinction between the two, because be- between the, the the two laws, and this is why I think that uh, we have to develop a decolonial a, a, a strong decolonial consciousness in France. If I may add to that, it's actually. Uh, the French left is really out of, how can I say, out of touch with the realities of the so-called grassroots it pretends to represent. Uh, and we have seen the French left actually standing against non-white minorities 
anytime they organized. I can give, for example, in the uh, an example of the 1970s rise of le mouvement des travailleurs arabes, the movement for Arabian workers, and they had to split from the mainstream, you know, left-wing unions because the questions of uh, discrimination at work, police brutality, the, uh, and the uh, uh, the paperless, you know, immigrants' plight did not interest the main unions. And these Arab workers had to organize outside of the, the usual unions and face tremendous hostility, for example, from the mother of all unions, the CGT, uh, CGT in French. So this is not new. What is worrisome is that throughout the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, to this day, the French left systematically betrayed minorities in their struggles. And I will use uh, various examples to make sure that we, I am understood and not misquoted. Uh, first, we have to understand that these white organizations, they would welcome blacks and, you know, and Arabs and Muslims, you know, per se, in the beginning of a social movement to show how open they are to minorities. But anytime the struggle between quotation marks or the movement gets to the negotiation table, it becomes a white-to-white -white conversation and the vital issues raised by these minorities are immediately dismissed as unimportant and that might jeopardize negotiations either with you know, uh, company owners or the corporations or the government. And this has happened systematically. When white people call out police brutality, um, I really have a hard time to be sympathetic. And you will have to forgive me on that because uh, when white people refer to May, uh, to, um, May 1968 uh, as you know, a major event that highlighted police brutality against white youngsters in uh, Paris, well, they did not mention the 100 people killed in the West Indies by the French police. They don't say a word about it, but that it happened, they did not feel concerned by it. I will just, you know, fast forward to, for example, the state of emergency in 2015, 16, and 17 until it became permanent. I myself was organizing with the anti-state of emergency front, and I saw, you know, vehement left-wing organizers that refused to acknowledge that Islamophobia was the, at the core of the state of emergency, that Muslims were by far the first victims of the brutal police raids, hundreds of house arrests, so much so that over 4,000 police raids had been carried, oftentimes in brut open brutality against innocent families, in mosques, in halal businesses. 0.16% of those raids led to an investigation on terror grounds. And even the French ombudsman mentioned that 99% of those raids targeted Muslims. Yet, for this so-called French left, they started counting the abuses of the state of emergency the day it was used against opponents to the environmental summit in Paris in late 2015. And I was at a meeting and it was unbelievable. We had seen for two and a half weeks, three weeks, Muslims being literally brutalized by the police and the gendarmerie. And for these leftists, their problem began when they began throwing tear gas at, at uh, you know, demonstrators facing the COP21 or the environmental summit. And this did not change. 
And that's why it is extremely important for minorities to organize and be autonomous, not only from mainstream, you know, state-sponsored organizations, but also from the left, because the left does not care as we see it today. They march against the comprehensive security bill, but turn a blind eye on the law targeting Muslims, and which is almost laughable, if not tragic, because the Article 24, which will ban filming the police, may be rewritten or redrafted or maybe even taken away from this comprehensive uh, security bill, but will be slid into the anti-separatism bill as Article 25, which means white people might, might call it a victory if that Article 24 is removed, but since they do not mobilize against the uh, anti-separatism bill, that same measure will be applied onto them. And the last point, and I think this one is crucial if I, if I still have the time, is it is one thing to call out white organizations, but it is also on banlieue and minority organizations to take note that if the government today can crack down on Muslims, shut down their organizations, criminalize their, their leaders, etc., it's because people at the height of the, at the, at the top of the government know they can do it and get away with it. What happened to CCIF today and against Baraka City also happened to other organizations. And North, North CCIF or Baraka City said a word when, for example, another anti-Islamophobia organization called the CRI, Coordination Against Racism and Islamophobia, faced tremendous violence from the police, from the prosecutor, and to the point of people losing their jobs and their health. And it is easy to come today and ask, you know, solidarity, etc. But when other smaller organizations were targeted, it did, nobody said a word about it. I speak to you today as a free man, but I don't know what's going to happen to me in the next few months. I myself am facing four lawsuits from the government because we made a series of investigations that revealed the death of a black woman on her workplace in the city hall uh, of the 20th arrondissement in Paris. We revealed the over-budgeting and over-militarization of the police in Colombe, the west side of Paris. We revealed how the far right infiltrated city halls and prevents black and Arab workers from getting promotions. We also revealed how the far right is working with the left when it comes to Islamophobia. Yeah, I got arrested. I'm facing four lawsuits and I never had any support. Now, of course, I'm not holding any grudges. I'm just saying that because so many people were silent for years while other activists were targeted, the French government, pardon my language, they are not stupid nor blind. They see that the, the banlieue grassroots are extremely atomized and divided, and they can go one after another without these atomized organizations daring to come together. And the, the sad example was the march of the 10th of November of last year, that was, uh, of course, a, a media uh, success because it was uh, centered or held by La France Insoumise or Mélenchon's political party. Yet, a month before that, on October 17th, an, um, a rally was organized by Muslims without interference of the left. And that autonomous rally had been boycotted by the organizers of the March of the 10th of November. 
And it is very sad because we see the results today. And I am very pessimistic on the developments because Emmanuel Macron does not listen. And he has surrounded himself with the most brutal Islamophobes of the past 30 years. Both you, uh, both Yasser and Huria, you've mentioned one, the, the sort of necessity of a decolonial consciousness and of the atomization of uh, migrant communities. And I'm wondering, what can a decolonial program and project offer in response to this atomization? How can uh, a decolonial mindset, you know, set in? in these commun- in marginalized communities and how can it you know um, tap into broader frustrations with austerity measures with police violence with uh, you know capitalism and racism as, as a whole decolonial consciousness is a global analysis on what uh, on the situation in the world it means that when we are decolonial, we are anti-capitalist. We are we 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 do um, the criticism of the nation states. We do the criticism of structural racism. We do the the criticism of Eurocentrism. We do the the criticism of white power. We do the the criticism of imperialism. So everything is connected. Uh, Islamophobia is connected to uh, uh, police brutalities. Uh, police brutalities are connected to this, the, the crisis of the migrants, etc., etc., etc. This is, uh, we can say that this is like Marxism. This is a global, um, a, a global thinking, a global analysis. Uh, but a global analysis, the decolonial thought is not enough. What we need is power. What we need is organizing ourselves uh, around this idea of decoloniality. But decoloniality in itself is not enough. We, ha- we have to think how to reach the power. This is the only aim we should have. But uh, as, you, as, you can say, as you can see, it's very difficult to think about how to get the power because the, abs- the obstacles are everywhere when we are non-white in the West. The obstacles are everywhere. Uh, you have to, to know that um, the party of the indigenous of the Republic, which is a decolonial party uh, that exists, that has existed since 2005 until this year, I have resigned from the peer. I have resigned uh, even even if uh, we 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 were able to, 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 to develop a new political idea in France, which is decoloniality, which is the question of race, which, which didn't exist before, uh, with the, the question of whiteness, with the question of uh, white power, etc., etc. Uh, even if we, we are successful in making, in, um, in making this idea emerge in France, we are not authorized uh, to to develop ourselves in the political field. This is why I I, I resigned. Yasser uh, talked about last year demonstration against Islamophobia. We were excluded from this um, from this uh, demonstration. We were excluded 
as the political party which uh, which um, struggled the, the 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 French Islamophobia since 15 years, and we were excluded from this demonstration because the organizers and CCIF was among the 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 organizers. They decided to exclude us because they wanted to make an alliance with the left. And the, the, the price for this alliance was to exclude the party of the indigenous of the Republic and a, a certain kind uh, of Muslims, Muslims who, who were uh, seen as radicals. Uh, actually, the, the, the Muslims who were excluded were, how, how, how can you say, conservative Muslims. But even if they are conservative Muslims, they, they should uh, be authorized to demonstrate like the others because they, they have the right to be conservatives. So I, I just want to, to, to point the fact that uh, uh, we know what we have to do. The, the, the problem is not what we have to do. The problem is how. The question is, of course, about strategy too, right? I'm, I don't think we should exclude conservative Muslims and conservative immigrants from from our organizing fields. But it is also about a political strategy of like directing these energies towards programs that resist being subsumed into conservative or reactionary politics, right? So how do we how how do you suggest taking these energies and and, and directing them into progressive, radical, transformative politics. Well, um, if I may on this one. Uh, so first, I mean, like, what I would like to say when it comes to uh, decolonizing and, you know, acting independently, etc., and the relation and redefining the relationship with, with the white majority organizations is that uh, first, it's about seeking autonomy from thought to action and to stop outsourcing strategies and uh, thinking and and uh, validation or legitimization from white organizations. That's for one. And of course, it also means being capable of seeking information, properly analyzing it, disseminating it, and training the right people with that information in mind. I always use the example of how white media operate. They will, for example, and and how they assign minorities to specific roles. They may not realize it, but we notice it. For example, and I put in this all white, you know, uh, white majority media outlets. And I'm, you know, I know it might be harsh, but from experience, this is what I have seen: is that they will invite the black or the Arab or the Muslim woman wearing a headscarf, etc., or people of the banlieue to come and act as victims and complain of discrimination, police brutality, uh, poverty, uh, poor housing, etc. But if you take a look, anytime a solution is to be proposed or anytime a structural analysis is to be made, it always comes, okay, I will take it back and say maybe most of the time it will come from a white person. And this uh, joins what uh, Algerian thinker uh, Malek Ben-Nabi uh, wrote in his book, The Ideological uh, Battle, is that the white progressive will welcome the indigenous 
when he carries the rifle. But when the day he steps into the arena of the ideological debate, which is perceived as the most noble form of struggle, he is immediately expelled and cast aside. And white media, for example, have deprived minorities from properly carrying their own narrative without the validation of white editors and white journalists, etc. The other one is for minorities to develop their own solidarity networks, which means instead of seeking the approval of white organizations, be it you know, NGOs, you know, grassroots organizations, human rights organizations, political parties, etc., is that they set up their own safe spaces to agree and disagree and debate and promote their own ideas so they can develop naturally by accepting whoever is part of this network and developing a coherent agenda where people feel like they are stakeholders, even though I had the term, and that they are part of something instead of a solution being imposed upon them either by power brokers or by uh, minority or community leaders who are in return guided by white political uh, parties. And of course, when it comes to speaking of, you know, whether you are a, a migrant, you know, of a conservative tendency or progressive tendency, you know, here, there, this is where we need to see political maturity in and of that you are both, both sides of the coin are sharing the same space and that white supremacy will target them both, whether they are conservative or progressive. And that requires them to speak to one another and accept that there are areas around which they will disagree, but that most probably they will agree on most things. And that's very difficult. And I have been extremely critical of religious Muslim organizations that come with this, I mean, like, just like, you know, televangelists in the U.S., they have these, you know, ideas they cannot see otherwise. Yeah, but the reality of minorities is not necessarily realities as they are imagined by those uh, clerical and religious leaders. And this is why I think to me the basis that is missing in all these movements is safe spaces to talk to one another and not to wait to speak to one another when the white man invites them to the table. And this is something my generation has seen. I hope not to see it in the next generation. And this is something we cannot uh, minimize because if you don't speak to one another, if you don't create a safe space, you won't trust one another and therefore you will never act with each other. And I think we've had 40 years of documented failures Anytime we overlook the necessity to have spaces where we can get together and come up with ideas where everybody feels that he was listened, and most importantly, that the common interest is saved. We may disagree on the methodology, but at the end of the day, we are bound to face the same discrimination, the same violence from the state, the same uh, narrative being taken away the same uh, uh, invisibilization, if the word exists, rendered invisible by people who are more organized and better funded. Yeah, I, I, the, last, the last thing that I want to ask about is, of course, it, you both are drawing on this, 
this uh, the decolonial or anti-colonial traditions, especially laid out by Franz Fanon. And of course, Fanon wrote about uh, how a revolutionary struggle bring has to produce a new humanism based on mutual recognition. And to be clear, this 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 quote unquote humanism isn't the liberal centrist concept of you know loving one another and uh, everything will be okay, but it's one that reminds me of uh, Noel Ignatiev's words, treason to whiteness is, is loyalty to humanity. That, you know, abandoning white supremacy is, it, it is, is, is the path towards, um, towards a new humanity or to, towards a new humanism. And I'm wondering, in your eyes and in your words, what possibility exists now for a, a new humanism? What, is, what does this look like for you? I'm, I'm very pessimistic because uh, we are in a very dangerous period um, because we we need we 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 in in one side we are happy that uh, uh, whiteness is declining and this is what is happening right now because there is the emergence of China the emergence of Russia the emergence of Iran and other countries. Uh, and and it's clearly um, a moment which is the decline of uh, of the West and of and in the same time of whiteness. So we have to be happy about that. But in the same time, this decline is very 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 dangerous. Uh, I think that because they are declining, fascism is is a solution for them. So if fascism is a solution. It means uh, that hard time are in front of us. If the left was really anti-racist and if non-white people were uh, organized, but this is not the fact. Uh, even the left, even the progressive movement are in big difficulties. I think we are, again, I, I repeat myself when I say that everybody is at a crossroads, both minorities and the majority population. And indeed, yes, fascism, fascism today is no longer uh, hiding itself behind discourses of you know individual emancipation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Today, things are pretty straightforward, which can of course represent a direct threat, but also a direct opportunity for people to organize differently. And this can only happen when we stop taking shortcuts and that popular education is implemented as widely as possible. We cannot mobilize people who don't know what, what the hell is happening around them. And that means a heavy investment in individuals and for them not only to be aware or better prepared to face the world they live in, understand what went right and what went wrong in the past decades, but because you would also give them a platform to learn together, they will be able to act together. So there are reasons to be optimistic, but this is only uh, uh, conditioned to how much uh, the current uh, generation of activists uh, is willing to invest itself and to go beyond their individual personal dreams of shining and get the recognition of uh, the white uh, power structure. The white power structure will always make sure 
that minorities occupy their role that has been historically defined to them. If they integrate a white media, that they reinforce the white narrative and that they act as power brokers or speakers for minorities. If they integrate political parties, they will be expected to only to first pledge allegiance to white supremacy, which is the glue of this Fifth Republic in France, but also they will only speak when asked to speak, for example. And we see that uh, the various uh, people from communi uh, migrant communities who promised to change the system from within, they all failed, and the system not only changed them, but also exposed them. So really it's about this current generation that I am part of. How are we willing to go beyond ourselves? This is not about me or us individually speaking. It's about leaving a legacy of liberation behind us the day we are gone and not to try to keep things centered around us because we are too small at the end of the day. This is bigger than us. This, is go this goes way beyond us. And this requires us to be honest. Are we willing into this to liberate or to get something in return? up this episode of Who Belongs, we'd like to thank our guests Yasser Luati, head of the Justice and Liberties for All Committee, and Huria Butelja, founding member of the Party of the Indigenous of the Republic, for their sharp insights on the recent and ongoing events in France. We also want to mention that Yasser hosts an English language podcast called Le Breakdown, which you can find on his organization's website. Huria, meanwhile, is the author of a recent book, Whites, Jews, and Us, Towards the Politics of Revolutionary Love, published by MIT Press. We'll put links to their work along with the transcript of this interview on our website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. This has been Mark Abizade. And this is Irfan Marathi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>